Hey, fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett, and today I am here with Blair Thornburg. Blair is the author of the picture books Skulls! Exclamation point, and Second Banana, and the young adult novels Who's That Girls? and Ordinary Girls. She received her MFA in writing for children and young adults from Hamline University. She now lives just outside her hometown of Philadelphia. Blair, welcome. Thank you. I am so excited to talk about nerdy things. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I don't know which nerdy thing. Usually I, I come in knowing a sense, but I actually I'm ready for anything with you. <laughs> I have yeah, no idea well, what we're going to talk about. That's probably good for any conversation with me because we'll take it places even I'm not aware of. Um, but uh, no, I I think I know what I will indulge you in <laughs> making me um, uh, making you listen to me about. So um, I uh, as as I am an author, so I do a lot of research that is related to books, but. Um, the novels you just mentioned are both contemporary novels, so I have not really written any historical fiction necessarily, but I try to give the characters in contemporary novels, I don't know, interesting hobbies and stuff or jobs that are cool. And so in a book I was working on sort of recently was um, about a girl who liked to sew because surprise, I like to sew. Um, <laughs> And so I, I sort of let that be a springboard slash excuse to just learn a lot about how clothes are made and the history of fashion and textiles. And, you know, I'm sitting here in like a pair of Target leggings from six years ago and like a, a free t-shirt from a 5K. So like you wouldn't look at me and think that I'm someone interested in fashion history and garment construction. but. I think it's super cool. <laughs> like, it's really fascinating. So I don't even know where to begin. But Yeah, um, that's awesome. I mean, like, because it's the kind of thing where you're you're doing it for your character, but you're also learning for yourself, right? Like, you're, you must have been a little curious. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I have always sewed myself. It was something I learned when I was a kid and have done off and on pretty much since then. Um, but I also, as I was sort of, developing the character and thinking about, you know, what it means to be um, this kind of character who also sews and sort of sees the world that way, it became, you know, like a dominant metaphor. Like there was a lot to sort of unpack in the various gestures and actions of sewing. Uh, and like, I'm sure some of them are really tortured, but it's the first draft, so who cares? Um, yeah, you get to throw it all on the page now. Absolutely. And, you know, garments are, everyone has worn clothes at some point in their life. So it's something that, you know, is universal, but of course, incredibly diverse. And, um, you know, it's it's an economic thing, but it's also been very much like a, a female pursuit for most of at least Western history. And um also, it makes me really obnoxious to watch like certain uh, historical movies with because I get like all gripey about the quality of like the silhouette or whatever. Um, <laughs> but not, not, I mean, like not in a destructive way, but I do think, um, you know, there there is this sort of alien quality to the past where people wore stuff that like today just looks stupid and not in a like acid wash jeans kind of way, but like you know, in the Regency era of um, England, sort of turn of the century, um, uh, gosh, I always get centuries mixed up. It would have been 16th to, no, 17th to 18th? In the early 1800s, let's say, um, women would wear those really super tight spiral curls around their face, and it looks dumb. Like, I don't think it's flattering <laughs> to anybody. But, you know, that is what was considered fashionable. And it's just very difficult to kind of have fidelity to that in a visual medium representing people from that time, but not have the audience be like, wow, the, they all look so dumb. Like, why would right. anyone think this woman is beautiful? She's got like strange little like things pasted to the side of her face. Yeah. And if you, I, I feel like if you want to communicate that a character is a hottie, 
Mm-hmm. Um, that that is a challenge if you're trying to be period accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a fun thing. I really love Amadeus as a movie because I it was just sort of something I watched a lot in high school, which I feel like is a dangerous time to watch Amadeus. But <laughs> you know, um, Tom uh, Holsey, I don't know how to say his last name, has that glorious hair under his Mozart wigs. That's just this like, you know like 80s kind of shag um that's very blonde and he, he looks fine but it's also like oh this is a historical movie s- that was filmed in the 80s <laughs> like you can see that even though you know there's nothing explicit about that obviously in the text so um right but i, I this is not to talk about hair that's wildly out of my depth more, <laughs> more on the level of you know um Making clothes, because it's also, a, it, it is a very humbling experience to make something and wear it because you realize that it's super hard. <laughs> like, it takes forever. It does not actually save you any money and does not save you any time. Um, and it certainly gives you, I think, a respect for people who do this and, you know, usually in far off lands for not a lot of money, make most of the things that we wear. Whereas I'm like, what the hell direction is the fabric grain going? And it takes me like a full 20 minutes just to like lay it smooth. Whereas, you know, an experienced commercial professional seamstress could have knocked out like six pairs of shorts in that amount of time. So um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, both, it's, it's book research, but it's also experiential. Um, I did take a, a draping class at um, uh, the Maid Institute, which is like a little um, fashion school in Philly. And uh, I think I was one of like two people who wasn't like actually a fashion person there. Um, and it was cool. It was very Project Runway, you know, but you're like, crap, the human body has a lot of curves. Like it's not flat. <laughs> and this is a challenge. What so, is draping? So draping is, uh, there are two ways to make a pattern, which, um, you know, is the sort of paper flat layout that you put on top of a piece of material and cut out and then attach to other pieces to create any kind of garment. Um, You can create the pattern pieces by sort of flat geometry. I think it's called flat pattern making. So just sort of measuring the various widths of the parts of the body that you want to cover with clothing and then, you know, basically drawing it on graph paper. Um, and then cutting it out and, you know, adjusting it to make sure that it actually fits and using that to make the final one. Draping is using um, a dress form, which, you know, are the like headless body things that you sort of wheel around, again, Project Runaway style, and taking um, a piece of muslin fabric, usually muslin, um, which is just cheap, fairly, um, you know, universal in its weave, I guess, the way it feels, uh, and laying it on top of the mannequin to smooth it in place, pin it, um, create the look of the garment you want with your fingers, you know, like manipulating it into place and pinning it, drawing lines for stuff. And then you take it off the um, dress form, the mannequin, and smooth it out and kind of, you know, try to figure out what you meant when you had it pinned up there in a flat form and use that to create a flat piece of paper that you then trace onto more muslin and then you sew it up and then it doesn't look right so you have to make tiny adjustments and you kind of repeat as much as you need to until you have something that feels like it's going to drape across the body the way you envision um oh my god that sounds insufferable (laughs) like exhausting but i mean there's stuff i love to do that's like deeply slow and repetitive and and would seem boring and exhausting to other people yeah but it well, sounds like the kind of thing I would be overwhelmed before even it, like starting it definitely is um and I have never actually fully designed and created a pattern this way and made anything I've ever worn I still go to Joann's when there's a sale on like simplicity and, and buy stuff commercially because it's made by people who know how to do it but it's it's very fascinating because you know, the first lesson was literally like, okay, how does fabric work? Uh, and I was like, I don't know, it's made of thread, I guess. Um, <laughs> but there, there is a strong grain to the fabric. Fabric doesn't drape the same if you hold it from one side and then rotate it 90 degrees, it will not hang exactly the same because there's a warp and a weft. Don't ask me which is which, I did not take that many notes. 
Um, and so you have to be very precise unless you really want to go back and do like a ton of fidgeting and adjusting. When you create that first chunk of fabric to lie across the dress form, you're like ironing the crap out of it. You, you square it um, so that it, it is not warped and pulled in one direction um, because usually you'll be ripping it um, instead of cutting it with scissors because that allows it to just follow directly down the grain of a thread along where you're ripping, um, which like I would not have cared about if I had not known, but it's the curse of knowledge. Like we were talking before we started recording, like I can't not know that now. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's very cool. And, you know, again, with like sort of the, the uh, extended metaphor um, of sewing is that you end up, especially if you're designing for yourself um, or, um, you know, a real person, a real specific person, uh, you end up seeing your body in this very uh, geometric way, I guess. I mean, not to say that you you don't sort of have feelings about it as a body, especially if you're pinning something to yourself, then you're very proprioceptive <laughs> because you don't want to poke yourself. But, um, you know, you, I, I did not know that I had a particularly like long back of neck to waist ratio, but I do. And so that means I have to accommodate for that when I'm creating something that's going to go on that part of my body. And uh, I don't know. That's I mean, that's like a proportion of a body that is measurable, but it's also not one that I think has any particular cultural baggage associated with. Like, yeah, I just, I just have to know that. And so um, that's cool. You know, it's it's really interesting because when you make something from scratch, it's sort of just facts are facts. You, you can't get things to go in directions that don't work for the physical reality of this piece of fabric. Um, and I, I have tried to, I've been teaching my niece to sew, um, which has been delightful. She's almost eight. And, uh, you know, she, it's, it's cool to see things through a child's eye, but also sort of explaining to her this stuff. Uh, she's very not interested in the theory of it, which is fine. Like I also was eight once. Um, but I was like, yeah, unfortunately, like to do this well and make all the cool stuff you want to wear, you have to learn a lot of kind of relatively boring facts and do a ton of math, which personally I feel very insulted by. Like I was told there would be no math. Um, What is the first article of clothing you sewed for yourself? A bodice thing uh, for another school assignment about the Renaissance. We could make food we could learn a piece of music from the Renaissance or we could make clothes and everybody made food except for me. <laughs> um, and and my one friend, Evan, I think he learned a piece on like the saxophone, which is not a Renaissance instrument, but it was very loosely defined as a <laughs> cultural project. So yeah, so that I made out of um, just a regular, I mean, it was a costume pattern. So as I know now, not historically accurate, um, but I, I made it with, I think upholstery fabric because it looked cool. I didn't know that like different fabric had different qualities. So I just picked one with a print that I liked and like it worked fine. But my my aunt who was supervising me was sort of like, okay, so this is made for cushions, not people, but we're going to work with what we have. (laughs) Um, And I honestly, I felt very cool. And the next year after that in seventh grade, I made Again, not historically accurate, but a, a princess costume. It had a zipper, so that was not a thing in, like, the 12th century. Um, but that was the Halloween when, like, everyone started being sexy for Halloween, and I did not get the memo. <laughs> so I, like, showed up to school in this, like, beautiful, like, hand-stitched, you know, trim on the shoulders and everything, blue gown, and everyone's like, we're bad Catholic schoolgirls. And I was like, oh, Cool, we're there. (laughs) Claire. Yeah. No, it's fine. People actually thought it was really cool. So, you know, I just, um, I think it literally took me so long to finish it that, like, people went through puberty in the time between, like, buying the pattern and me, like, putting the final stitches in it. (laughs) So you've been doing this for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those interests that kind of resurfaced as I decided to incorporate it into, I guess, like, my capital A art, which is writing, but um, I I still have uh, the sewing machine that belonged to my mom's mom, I'm glancing over at it, um, that is, you know, I guess not an heirloom, it's, it's from the early 90s, but it's just the only one I've ever sewed on. Um, and so I learned from various women in my family uh, and 
always, I mean, I don't know if you also as, you know, someone who was a teenager at roughly the same time did that thing where you're like, I'm cutting up all of my t-shirts to make them different. And, <laughs> oh, I sure did. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, you know, would like go on live journal for t- tutorials because it was so much harder back in those days of the internet to get reliable information on how to make stuff. And not that the live journal stuff wasn't good, but now, I mean, there are, there are websites where you can input your measurements and get um, a pattern to make a custom fit cotton dress form, <laughs> like, you know, that you then just stuff with like a ton of like stuffed animal stuffing. Uh, that did not exist in like 2003. We had t-shirt <laughs> So, yeah, I'm so but glad I that live journal existed. I had this I friend who uh my best friend actually who was good at sewing or at least owned a sewing machine and used it, which was like That's wow. Good enough. Yeah, and she because it was I I graduated high school in 2003, so it was like the extremely early aughts mm-hmm. um baggy pants land and mm. um she we would go over to her house, me and other people, mm-hmm. and she would do this sort of workshop with us on how to cut apart our pants and sew them to other pants. What? So Wait, that, that sounds the, very hard. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. The pants were like tense. Like they were like, God, they were two yeah. pairs of pants and half of them would be jeans and half of them would be like a cool fabric we got from Joann's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I that was the same exact experience I had. Well, in my case, I think because I currently I'm five foot eleven, but even as a teen, I probably, you know, the year of that uh, princess dress, I was probably easily five seven. So I got very good at kind of ways of making pants that were too short look longer um and it was you could do this thing where i think i got it the tip from american girl magazine it was like you could sew um ribbon around the bottom hem of your like flares or jenkos or whatever (laughs) but it really just looked like you had like ribbon on your pants it didn't look like the pants fit um and so (laughs) you know but at the time it's it's like with a lot of art I think there's a point in sewing where you like recognize that the only things you can reliably create are things that you have no use for or like are not your taste like you can sew a lot of placemats into purses but like do you want to carry a purse that's a placemat um yeah I don't know yeah that's a great question (laughs) right yeah so um no I I just I I don't know why it's always appealed to me because again like I'm not really a fashion person like clothes are cool don't get me wrong but like I give very little thought to what I wear on a day-to-day basis and um I don't really end up wearing a lot of stuff that I make because uh it doesn't fit it just it just I cannot get the hang of it um or you know I want to make a costume but how often am I going to wear like a sort of fakey Tudor looking gown um at least in you know like everyday life probably not too often (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a sometimes food. Yeah, exactly. Um, What about your character? Is your character making, like, what do you have your character making? Yeah. Or is she just learning? No, she's she's sort of um, in between, I would say, like an advanced beginner. Um, I I don't know where I got the idea. Um, I think it was because another writer friend of mine was like, you should write a character who likes to sew because you like to sew. Um, but I decided that it would be fun to have her be doing sort of a, you know, senior project kind of like short-term internship job at a custom wedding dress salon. So like making, um, gowns for, uh, other people who are real people. Um, and it just seemed like a very sort of juicy place to have her be spending a lot of time because, you know, as a cultural object, like wedding gowns are like the ne plus ultra of dresses like they have yeah everything on them and um as I as I described this book like my first book was kind of about my first novel was about friendship my second one was about sisters and then I was like well so this one probably should be about sex like I've put it off long enough for young adult like (laughs) it's time 
So, um, so yeah, I, I thought it would be cool to have that be her job. And also, you know, it's plausible, I think, for a 17, 18 year old to be good enough to do sort of, I don't know, studio assistant level work, um, basic things like hemming, probably prepping things. Um, but also that, you know, she could also like fuck up in a big way where like, if you, if you ruin someone's custom wedding dress at the last minute, there's kind of no recourse there. Like, what are you going to do? The fabric's expensive and, uh, you know, it's the only one that exists. So it just seemed super fun. And I, I have not written the part where anything goes wrong, but, uh, I am anticipating it and I think it'll be very, um, juicy. Like I said, that's a weird word yeah. to describe it, but. Oh, absolutely. And also, I mean, if you're if you're working at a place where people are trying on their wedding dresses, like the range of emotions is right in front of you. Yeah. And absolutely. You get to sort of watch and observe that, which is cool. Yeah. And I think it seems sort of like a good, like high level hook for a young adult novel in particular, because it sounds sort of frothy. Um and I think especially the more I thought about the realities and logistics of constructing these dresses, of working with people, of just like being very close to their body. I mean, I recently went wedding dress shopping with my baby sister who's getting married. And um, I was Aww. like, listen, just you have to get over the fact that a lot of these shop ladies are going to see you in your underwear. Like that's just just be comfortable with that. And they've they've seen everything also. They're like pedicurists, you know, like you can't gross them out they've already seen grosser feet um so that I think as as a as a teenage girl just seemed like a cool place to have her taking in all that stuff on the reg and then you know she ends up um kind of coming into contact with the romantic interest who is um a boy from her school that she doesn't know super well because his mom is getting remarried and getting a custom dress there so you know, I was just like, well, that's very funny if she meets his mom and doesn't really know either of them, but is like measuring across his mom's boobs and then you know, <laughs> ends up like dating her son kind of for a while. Um, so, yeah, it, it felt like a really interesting place where I could plausibly include any details I found out about how garments are put together and make it like a very like sage sounding metaphor um i don't know if that's actually true I, not a lot of people have read it so far no one's complained but um yeah it was really fun and also i think i would have liked to have that kind of job when i was that age um maybe not with all the pressure but um i liked the idea of you know teens having jobs that are actually interesting um yeah yeah it's so rare i know um, <laughs> So, and then also, you know, it's a good, it's as we know, I guess, at least in the YA world, but probably in all writing that it's very poor form to have your character like stand in a mirror and describe themselves to, you know, get the reader to understand what they look like. But um, right. I was like, well, if she's taking her own measurements to like make herself, I don't know, a jumpsuit or something, um, there's, uh, it seemed like a good sort of like secret way to Trojan horse in some physical description. Because... <laughs> I'm so lazy about exposition. I just want excuses. Um, I'm he I hear you, man. Yeah. And also, I think it's fun for characters to have strong opinions about things, which is why, you know, if the research you're doing is for something that's, you know, set in a contemporary sphere, um, that you can just have them uh, know a lot about something that is real and um, just get, like, super mad about, like, taffeta or something. And... Uh, <laughs> It seems like a good way to get to know them as a person, but also then when you're reading it, you can feel very smart. And you're like, I too now have any opinion whatsoever on Taffeta, like yay or nay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the best thing about being a writer is you get to learn about all the things. Like there was a time in mid MFA mm -hmm. when I was like, maybe I'll get a PhD. Yeah, um, I remember because that, I was that like, stage. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do next. And mm -hmm. I I like learning. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't know. I think I think at the time, too, my creative writing was like a bit stagnant. And then like I sort of turned a corner the following semester and I was like, oh, 
it's way better to be a writer than to study one subject. Yeah. Because then you get to study any subject you want. You get to study a lot of things. That's such a good point. I had never thought of it that way, but I have always said that my favorite people to meet at cocktail parties are like PhD students because I'm like, tell me about your research. Like, what are you doing in this program of yours? Um, And unless it's like, but yeah, being a writer is like that because then you cannot have to get the whole PhD. You can just like be permanently in that cocktail party space. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And like Wikipedia is is free, except for when it yells at you for $5 every so often. So like, why not? (laughs) Just like fill your pockets with all this cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's like part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear about weird stuff from the people who are like excited about Mm -hmm. the random stuff. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about sewing is that um, people are in, in again, like sort of this casual cocktail party scenario. People are astonished that, you know, if I am wearing something I made that I made it. Uh, it's like, you know, I I can't think of something equivalent. It's like I saying I like, you know, forged my own like braces out of steel or something. They're like, people (laughs) do that? Um, But, you know, I I don't think it's actually that much harder than cooking. It's following a recipe. I mean, God knows, with the exception of this draping course, I really just follow instructions, which is kind of satisfying and soothing in its own way. But, it, it is sort of cool to feel like that's a special witchcraft skill that I have that um, feels arcane to the average clothes wearer. Um, and then um, I, I forget who, uh, it sounds like a Julia Child kind of quote where like you shouldn't serve something and then criticize all the things that went wrong. Like I burned the garlic and like something curdled, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, inevitably in this conversation, this person asking me about sewing, I'm like, well, I screwed up all these things. Like, here's where this is crooked. I sewed this on backwards. So there's like pucker marks from tearing it out. And you don't actually have to go that far. Like, it's it's hard not to, I think, if you're like a research holy kind of person, because you want to sort of include the other person in the process of it now that they've showed like an inkling of interest. But um, it just makes you look... Uh, either like falsely modest or like a little OTT. So <laughs> I try not to do that too often. Um, yeah, just let them be impressed. But I do the same thing. I mean, I, I think learning to take a compliment is mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, and, it's a lifelong process. And it's the, it's the curse of knowledge too, you know, like you can't unsee some kinds of things. Um, but, you know, when I've made things for other people, they're like, thrilled. Although I just, my friend Amy has a book coming out um, this week, actually. Her book launches on Monday. And um, I made her uh, a dress to wear that's sort of patterned. It's a book about a girl who um, throws herself a bat mitzvah. And so Amy picked out a, a cool like Hebrew letter fabric. And I was about to cut out all the pattern pieces when I was like, oh my God, these are letters. They have to be going in the right direction. Like I had just sort of, <laughs> it was beautiful and colorful and it's not, you know, my eye is not trained to see the Hebrew alphabet really as anything but sort of like shapes. Like I know them from a dreidel, but I can't read them. So if I were looking at, you know, Arabic numerals or like the English alphabet, I would automatically know which way to put them. But I was like, hold everything. And then I had to FaceTime her and be like, is this correct? Um, so that I feel like get, would have been sort of a hilarious uh, mistake to make, but fortunately I was, I was correct. Everything seems to have lined up properly and I think it fits. Uh, she lives in California. So, you know, I was doing my best from afar. Um, but yeah, it's also, it's a nice thing to be able to do for people, um, if they need stuff sewed, cause, uh, especially in the pandemic times, I was making a ton of masks, like before you could get them everywhere, like last March. Um, I, I ended up just having people dropping off like bags of old bed sheets on our, um, on our front step because I would put them out in the little free library and people would know that there's like a mask lady here. And I would just, I had like so many old bed sheets, which worked fine. Like once you run them through a sanitized cycle, but I was also like, please stop. Like, this is too much. I don't have enough space. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily have a sewing machine in the apocalypse, but I did feel better that like, maybe I would have one skill <laughs> Um, beyond kind of a court jester to keep people from despairing that would No, that's a great skill. That's an excellent apocalypse skill. Yeah. So 
Um, actually, so I have a question um, for you and your knowledge of um, Beverly Cleary books, because uh-huh. there there are two moments in Beverly Cleary books that I feel like are very etched into my memory, uh, but I don't know if it's because I just pay attention to the sewing parts or not. So, <laughs> but um, okay, there's one Ramona book where she's making pants for her stuffed elephant. Does this ring a bell? It, with the exception of uh, Ramona Quimby, age eight, mm-hmm. which a I classic. read again in grad school, mm-hmm. and I was like, this is a perfect book. Um, so good. But with the exception of that one I haven't they were read to me when I was like five yeah so I don't remember I'm remembering I had them on tape and I would listen to them like every night um Stockard Channing read them so I've probably heard or read these books like a very abnormal amount but um Um, listeners can feel free to weigh in though if you want to write in and say whether you remember her making the stuffed elephant is that what you said yes well her name is Ella Funt which I thought was a very clever (laughs) name for a stuffed elephant but and if you haven't read it I do recommend this scene I wish I could remember which book it's in but the frustration she encounters when not being able to fit the pants she is trying to make over the rounded rump of this stuffed elephant because <laughs> it's not just two flat pant pieces. It's like the butt part is bigger in the back than in the front. Um, it's in typical Ramona fashion. It just has this like emotional realness of what it feels like to freaking not be able to get the pants to fit. So the moment when you realize that making clothes is like way sort of like literally three-dimensional more complicated than you thought it was. It's, it's sort of one of those very uh, old-fashioned feeling books now because the whole contrast between the main character and her best friend who is I think new to town and maybe a little more like urbane is that um, her friend's mother doesn't sew she she buys boughten dresses to wear to school and it's like (laughs) I know right and it's like oh okay because I mean, at the time, certainly, uh, like, material and patterns were cheaper than getting things manufactured, but they didn't have, like, Forever 21. <laughs> so it's, it's again, like, very funny to have this marker of, I don't think it was a class thing necessarily. I think it was just sort of like a, this, maybe it was like a working mother thing. Like, she's too busy to sew dresses for her children. Um, <laughs> whereas now yeah, we- sometimes those, like, classic children's books really show their age. Yeah. Like, I'll never forget, like, reading about the sanitary napkins and, uh, oh my God, I are know. you there, God, it's me, Margaret, and being like, wait, there's a belt? I know. Oh, my gosh. I really, I feel like it's a moral duty for, like, old versions of that book that have not been updated to the, like, sticky kind of menstrual pad to, like, be burned (laughs) because it confuses people. And I personally was like, oh, my God, this is so much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. You know, I'm like, I've inherited along with the sewing machine of my grandmother's, like, a trove of, like, notions, they're called, for people who aren't sewists. But, um, like, buttons ribbons um sort of interfacing like the little things that you have to add to make it stay shut or like hang properly and um, they're called notions notions yeah your notions that is so fun yeah yeah right so um they they're i guess it it's everything that isn't fabric really um or a tool so uh and she had like the doodads yeah the doodads yeah the thingamajigs um and (laughs) i i have them in these giant tubs i'm now looking at them but it's very fun because most of them are still fine you know there's nothing in them that expires the elastic i threw out that obviously doesn't last but um but they all have these like stickers on them from whatever like sewing shop she used to go to in hollidaysburg pennsylvania uh and they're all like 25 cents you know um and it's, again, it's just like this weird different era. There's not, it feels sort of weird to be like, well, thanks, dead grandmother, who I didn't know super well for all of the sewing stuff that you never would have conceived that I would use. Um, but it's also really nice to have as just like a material thing. Yeah, I wonder I what you're saying about um, the Beverly Cleary books or the, the sewing mm-hmm. moment in them is making me think, like, I wonder if it, it must be very common for grandmothers to have uh, 
or more common for grandmothers to have material if like historically you just sewed more back then i think so i mean i know my grandmother my mom's mom was uh she was a hella seamstress like she made everything and for a while made our Halloween costumes when my sister and I were kids but my mom I think said she didn't have a a store-bought coat uh until she was in college and like look at a coat like they are hard to even conceive of let alone construct like I can't put a sleeve in a t-shirt and a coat you've got like thick wool and like a lining and it's like a mess so uh yeah it was just it was very, it was a different time. Um, although famously, my mom's mom made her a pair of pants with striped fabric. And if you've, if you've ever gone to like the Lula No subreddit, you know that pattern matching on pants is very important because otherwise unfortunate silhouettes can be created. Especially, oh no! Yeah. Um, and this wasn't bad. It's just that the, the two pant legs in the middle of the stripes didn't quite line up. So like, it wasn't anything obscene. It's just you could sort of, if you really looked tell that um you they weren't really even but again my grandmother was like whatever like you wear them it's they're not going to be anywhere uh but then of course (laughs) my mom ends up wearing those pants the day that she takes a family photo with her new husband's family that ends up being their christmas card photo and she's like smack in the middle so like your eye immediately goes to like where these pants do not quite line up in the legs. Oh no! But you know, my Pennsylvania Dutch grandmother was not going to like scrap a perfectly good pair of pants just because the stripes were slightly askew. So. Sure, my grandma did so. Mm-hmm. I I very like the one thing I remember her doing for me was like at some point we sewed a doll's outfit together, together in like quotations Mm because it was my doll and she mostly sewed it and pretended we were doing it together. But um, she had this basket of fabric Mm -hmm. and me and my sister, every time we would go over there, we would just fuck with the fabric. Like we were obsessed with the fabric and we would – drape we would drape it over our bodies and like tie it together in like various ways Mm -hmm. and my grandma always said like she's gonna be a costume designer when she grows up (laughs) or like she'll be in fashion Mm -hmm. and like no no I know (laughs) but that's kind of the cool thing about fabric though is that like you know if it's um if it's nice fabric, it's nice to touch. Like touching fabric is very fun. It's kind of like running your fingers through dry rice or something. So yeah, I don't think you have to care about clothes to like touching the material. Um, And like the possibility of them, I think there's something magical about that too. Like before you do Mm -hmm. anything with them and also the patterns, of course. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is kind of astonishing when you think even just going to, you know, your, I, I am on a first name basis with like everyone who works at Joanne, like (laughs) show up and like, you know, my, uh, they'll ask, uh, how my husband is. And I'm like, well, I didn't bring him because last time we had a fight because I was taking too long because I want to touch all the fabric. (laughs) And if you, you sort of go and pick out, um, they have, uh, these sort of books that are basically catalogs that show all the different styles that you can make. And then the patterns all have numbers. So then you go to the proper um, file drawer and open it and root through and then find the style number that you want in the size that you want. And then you kind of go and hold that pattern envelope up next to all the material that's in the store. And like, you know, there, this is not like the garment district, like it's, it's Downingtown Joanne, but like still, you could create so many different versions of this thing. And um, even though you are, like I said, sort of following a recipe, uh, it's it's cool. I mean, it's really heady to just like think about uh, all the stuff that you can do um, and then end up with something that like will never exist again, even close to that iteration. Um, especially if you make a lot of mistakes, because then, you know, it's like, oh, it's sort of a wabi-sabi take on this simplicity blouse or whatever. Um, <laughs> so. so in in researching about mm-hmm. uh, sewing or fashion, is there a story you like, like a history story or like a type or like an era you like or something like that? Oh, good question. I mean, you know, I really like renaissance fashion but i think it's because it's one of the few eras that you kind of have a place to go wear it uh which is like a renaissance fair um 
the the clothes are beautiful and heavy and elaborate um but they're also uh very um sort of geographically indicating like if you look at the differences in necklines or sleeves or what have you um they they tell you about like where that person is from um you know there's a difference between like a venetian style gown and like a, a london style gown those are not official terms from the same year and knowing that i find really cool because then you know if i'm watching a movie again, I become that person who I'm like, oh, okay, so her sleeves, it's really interesting that they did this because they weren't really in style yet, but she's kind of like a fashion forward character. So like, it makes sense that she'd be a little ahead of the curve. Um, yeah. So it, and you know, like if it's that level, like if it's a historical mm -hmm. movie, like the fashion or the, the costume designer, like made that choice deliberately yeah yeah and i mean you really can say that about i think any costume design um because if it's done right it is you know being done with um thoughtfulness about who the characters are how they treat their clothes how they buy them and you know or make them but in the historical era you you don't come in with knowledge necessarily um you have to research and I think there's also just a very long tradition of um, people throughout the the eras preserving Renaissance and kind of early modern fashion in particular, um, because I this is I'm gonna sort of guess here, but I do think that it's probably the earliest era where we do have some extant garments that have survived like to this day. Um, I mean, there are sort of scatterings of, and, and I'm talking about Europe because I'm a medieval studies major, so that's really all I know. But you see occasionally like things that have been preserved in a bog or something. And like, yes, it's technically <laughs> like a surcoat from that era, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the oomph of, of what it actually would have looked like worn on a human being. But when you get to that kind of event horizon of, no, some of these dresses and doublets and hose and whatnot like exist still, um, that's very cool. And that's certainly by the time you get to like the, um, well, like the Belle Epoque and like just sort of big floofy skirts, uh, looking at those as actual pieces and looking at, uh, a fashion plate illustrating that same thing. Um, you can really tell, you know, both what, what the actual clothes look like on a human body or a mannequin, usually in a museum, but also how the art style of the time um, made changes in rendering it for, you know, a, a advertisement or um, the gossip pages or what have you, because uh, people weren't making technical drawings necessarily of these clothes. They were drawing the sort of cute, like enticing illustration versions that make people want to imitate them or buy a pattern once patterns were available. Um, and so it's, it's kind of just like a study in the history of material culture and like manufacturing, <laughs> but, um, huh. but yeah, I would say probably the short answer is like, I do like big poofy skirts. Um, cause they're cool and, uh, I would never wear them in real life. So, uh, it's kind of like the further you can get from every day, the more it feels, um, fantastical and there's just more to learn to you and anyone interested in um, having a strong opinion about something you never knew you cared about. <laughs> uh, historical costume YouTube gets their dander up about corsetry because um, the cultural myths about corsets are ridiculous. I mean, if you see, did you watch Bridgerton? Yes. Okay, so you know the very first or an early scene, they're all like tugging on the corset strings for Daphne or something as she gets ready to make her debut absurd because at that time the gowns were on pure waist which hit right under your like um bosom line and your waist is not fitted so there's no point in cinching the waist of a corset tighter because it doesn't it's just gonna make it hard to walk the dress does not reveal that tautness so it was okay just... so they would have worn corsets but you wouldn't pinch the waist because well, they wouldn't see the waist at that time i think it would have been more of a stays which are kind of they're not as boned as corsets um and especially you know it was interesting like in the sort of outlander era which was like i'm i'm only going to date by tv shows so the Great. outlander era <laughs> you had you had more of a, a nipped in waist silhouette and then the sort of big plaid skirt that they're wearing but by the time you get to Bridgerton slash Jane Austen, 
it's this sort of like Greek revival, almost like diaphanous look. So, um, you know, the, the, the bust part would be very tight. And so I don't, it's not like a great amount of support compared to like a modern brassiere, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a muumuu. And so then under that, you didn't really need to have um, as much of a sort of highly structured waspish waist because the, the skirt sort of fell from like your mid rib cage to the floor. Um, what are some, uh, do you have any other strong opinions about like fashion in movies? Or? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I do think that uh, generally that costume designers should be allowed to make the female leads look in giant air quotes uglier like they should embrace uh the standards of the time that they're portraying and not worry about like how sexy the actress is going to look this wig which is sort of like i don't know um it almost looks like one of those like boy tiktoker haircuts where there's like not a lot on the sides and a ton on the top like it just <laughs> it doesn't make sense and i don't know how far along wig technology was at that era like the late 1590s or maybe early 1600s um but i just i never bought that um and i i it doesn't matter for the purposes of the story because it's obviously fairly fanciful but uh it did bother me that like she would have just had to cut her hair off which like if you're gonna pretend to be a boy to go act in a play like commit gwen (laughs) like please yeah but she had to go back and forth I know, I know. She had to be the fiance during the day. I do, and I, I honestly love that movie as, as anachronistic at least as some of the dialogue is. Um, ben Affleck is perfect. <laughs> he's so good. Yeah, so, yeah. He's only good when he's playing himself. Truly. Um, <laughs> so, but it, it does another. I think strong-ish opinion I have is that there are some actors not because they're familiar, but something about their face just does not look old-timey. <laughs> if that makes sense. Huh. Um, like I, that totally makes sense. Yeah, like Daniel Day Lewis looks like the past. Like he's just from the past. There's something about his like cragginess that like <laughs> I see in the past. But like, um, I don't know. I think with some, especially sort of Jane Austen adaptations, they sort of maybe it's the way they do the makeup. But the women in particular have these like gorgeous full lips that are like emphasized with like a ton of I guess lip liner and. I'm, maybe I'm just thinking of Kira Knightley. Um, like, I think she was great, but I was also like, I don't know, you just sort of look like a modern person in a costume sometimes. But um, it's hard to say, because like we have mass media and I've seen these people's faces in so many contexts that I, I can't actually say that. Um, yeah. Is there someone, is there a woman in like a historical something that you think feels, she looks really old timey? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I do think the the Bennett parents in um, that, uh, I guess it was the 2006 Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley, it's Donner, Donald Sutherland, and I don't know the actress's name because I'm terrible and sexist. Uh, they are great. Um, and I think <laughs> what I really like about the production design of that that whole movie in particular is that it's set slightly earlier in time than I think the book was even written and set. It's kind of like, I would say maybe 1780s as opposed to like 18 teens ish. Um, and the Bennets huh. are living in a country house that is like very much a farm. Like there are constantly sort of like ducks waddling around and like sheep bleeding and things like that. And I think Donald Sutherland's his character, the way he's playing, but also the way they costume him he looks sort of like he could be hanging out with Ben Franklin <laughs> down in Old City. <laughs> and, and I think that's cool because it really allows them to draw, you know, I think because of the time and also making the Bennets just like poorer materially, like it, it makes them really contrast with the elegance of um, how fancy the rich people shit is. Um, cause again, you know, if you look at something super humble and you're like, oh, okay, that seems pretty reasonable for like a middle-class person to have. Then you look at like a silk gown and you're like, who could ever afford that? It's like seeing a Tesla or something. You're like, whoa. Yeah. And especially, I haven't seen that movie, but I'm like, oh, especially like 1700s fashion too. Is like, yeah. Well, the, the rich people fashion was like pretty intense. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. Well, speaking of things that are really heavy to wear, 
Um, but yeah. now that I think of it, I actually also really liked the recent Emma adaptation. Tunes are great. I think um, Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit et al. is Emma, and she's like beautiful and wall-eyed, like this strange little sylph. And um, But there's, there's a lot of butts in that movie, which when I say a lot, I mean like two, uh, but they're like non-sexual <laughs> butts. And uh, there's a scene very early on in the movie where Mr. Knightley comes in from riding and just, you know, takes off all his riding clothes and his valet helps him get dressed for a bath or I, I don't know exactly why he's changing clothes. But it's really cool because it's clearly not a scene that Jane Austen wrote. Like she was not going to write, uh, you know, she didn't actually write like a pond scene for Mr. Darcy either. But I right. feel like in the context of the movie, it makes a very subtle point, which is that like these were they're fictional people but there were real people like this who like had bodies that like sweat and wore clothes as not just costumes like they were things they changed into and out of and underneath that is like a naked person just like under every piece <laughs> of clothing so I don't know it, it was not gratuitous although I personally was like oh okay like nice nice to see you Johnny but um <laughs> from the filmmaking perspective it maybe was my favorite bit, bit of costuming but it did not actually involve it involved taking off most of the clothes. Um, and then there's another delightful <laughs> scene where Emma just like warms up her butt in front of the fire <laughs> when she's by herself. Um, which like, you know what? Relatable. Those houses got to get cold. And again, it just goes to show that like, you know, for all the kind of pageantry we think of that time as, people, their butts got cold. <laughs> and sometimes they had to like go hike up their skirt. Her look very much like a spoiled rich girl, like wearing all her fancy clothes out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was oh, so you. much fun. It was so fun. So very fun. We have a final segment called Something I Learned This Week. Um, are you ready for that? So ready. My good friend Leah has sent quite like a few emails. Ooh, um, the, and I'm going to read one of them right now. The title is, holy shit, today I learned Winnie the Pooh has made more money than Star Wars. Talk to me. And then, and well, and then, then the email is just no joke. And then it's just a, a Wikipedia link of highest grossing media franchises. What's a franchise exactly? You know what I mean? Totally. I mean... You know, you could argue that, like, well, I don't know. We've made a lot of movies about Greek mythology. Like, does that count as some kind of canon? But in that comparison, it makes sense because Winnie the Pooh had, like, a considerable amount more time to just accumulate franchise installments, right? Because this is the Wikipedia page. So Mm -hmm. it says... This includes media franchises that started as a book, film, video game, comic book, animated film or television series and have expanded to other forms of media. Okay. So I think Greek myths are out. Yeah. No, they, I think they we're do. talking more like brands. And, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh. Um, is Winnie the Pooh at the very top or is it just above Star Wars? It is above Star Wars and there are, there are two above Winnie the Pooh. So Winnie the Pooh is the third. Um, so do you want to guess what the other two are? Oh, it's tough. I was going to say Barbie, but then I was like, well, that's not, I mean, that's an empire, but it's not a franchise. Um, man, I mean, if Star Wars is at least number four, then it's kind of hard. Star to- Wars is number five. Between Winnie the Pooh and Star Wars is Mickey Mouse and Friends. Oh my God. Okay, so that was going to be my other guess. I... I, I don't know. I, I You could tell me something very obvious or very unexpected, and I think either way I would totally buy it. So, Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a hint, okay. and then if you, I, won't, I won't like belabor it if you can't guess. No, no, give me a hint. I'll try. One of the properties above Winnie the Pooh is Japanese. I was going to say Pokemon, but that's... Actually, they're both Japanese. Was one of them Pokemon? <laughs> Yes. Oh, okay, great. Good. I feel I feel good about that because when you said video game, I was like, oh, well, like Pokemon. So, and then yeah, Pokemon is at the top. So all you don't have is number two. Is it Hello Kitty? 
It is! Oh, oh my, my god, god, Blair, you're so good at this! Wow! Well, I was just thinking about stuff that I like. I mean, the first thing I ever purchased in a store with my own money was a Hello Kitty coin purse. So, <laughs> from my perspective, yes, absolutely. Wow! Um, Pokemon makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. Um Winnie the Pooh, I guess it does surprise me that it's up there with the other two. Yeah, but you know, I... I've noticed that um, there is this and kind of like Looney Tunes. Like there are some people who really collect a lot of stuff with Winnie the Pooh characters on it in a sort of Disney adults way that I don't understand, but I know is a thing. And again, just having like a leg up on Star Wars time wise, I could see how that snowballs. No, that's a really good point. And like Winnie the Pooh, every character is a stuffed animal. Like that's part of it. That's oh, the yeah. st- that's the orig- original story, right? Is it's all C- yeah. Christopher Robin's like toys. So Yeah. The toy the leap to buying a toy. So it's not really, a it's kind of like, you know, we we crap on like Transformers for being like, it's just a show to sell toys. I'm like, well, Winnie the Pooh, also a toy. I mean, AA Milne was like on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because all these have a year of inception next to it. Ooh. Um, and, you know, Pokemon is 96, Hello Kitty is 74, mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh, 1924. Goodness. I mean, that's that's like around the same time as like the OG teddy bear, too. Like, it's really like the history of like stuffed animals almost. Leah um, didn't say much else. She had the link. And then said, by a wide margin of like $10 billion. And listen, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Winnie the Pooh sucks. <gasps> Wait, is this you saying that or, or Leah saying that? Leah saying that. Oh, okay. Um, I don't agree. I don't know that I agree, but I weirdly haven't thought about it that hard. It seems like something I'd be more argumentative about. I'd be <laughs> I'd be very persuadable in either direction. Um. I never really read the books. Uh, I do. The books, I think, are a bit kind of precious for me, like in the way The Little Prince is, where like, if I meet someone who says they like The Little Prince, I'm like, okay, like, if you say so. But Really? Oh, well, you get to okay me then. Yeah, I I just, I don't, I, it, it seems very sort of, um, Twee isn't the right word because that means more specific things, but it just kind of makes my teeth ache. Uh, and see, with- I think the, I think the Little Prince is about a deep existential sadness. Well, it is French, so that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I would watch the movie. The movie looked twee, but yeah. the book itself. I mean, goddamn! Like, like there's a sort of depressive quality to even like the sweetest parts of it. Yeah, I think maybe that's why I don't like it is it feels very much like a kid's book that was written to have the adult author and adult readers work through some shit, which like (laughs) is fine. Um, But I don't know. I, I just I never thought it was interesting as a kid, although my dad loves to quote the um, drunk from the drunk planet, whatever it is where he visits, where he's like, je bois parce que j'ai honte, honte de quoi, honte de boire. And so it just means like, it's like I drink because I'm ashamed of drinking. So every Christmas invariably when we're like pouring out a lot of eggnog, we're like, je bois. <laughs> he goes into that. <laughs> um, so I, I have a fondness for the little prince. It's just very ironic. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think to the point of the, 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 to what you said about the Little Prince maybe being for adults, um, mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh is certainly for kids. Yeah, like Tigger is is like a child. Like yeah, oh absolutely. Like same with Piglet. I don't know. I Rue. I I think yeah, Rue. There's a lot of like characters in there that are just like literally bouncy. Mm. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's their but deal. You know, let's talk about profound sadness, though. I mean, uh, Winnie the Pooh is a kind of anxious fellow in in a light sense, but like Eeyore is like the the character that introduced all of us to the concept of like being depressed. Um, yeah, and know. Piglet. I mean, Pooh, I think has some anxieties, 
but like also has a lot of joy. Yeah. But like Piglet is anxious a lot. Yeah. Like I, if I had to pick my sort of ratio of Mm. Winnie the Pooh characters, Mm -hmm. I think I'm the most percent Piglet. I'm like a little bit Eeyore. Yeah. I feel and like, then I got I got maybe a little Kanga in me too. Yeah, she's the only girl, which you know, again, it was like a very Smurfetti kind of world. Um, <laughs> so I I feel like I definitely have some Tigger energy to me, but um, not I. No one can live like that twenty four seven. Like you're you're yeah. Tigger until you crash, and you're like I don't know uh, Rue. You just want to go like sleep in a kangaroo pouch. Yeah, and I feel like you probably have a little bit of um owl in you oh I forgot about owl yeah definitely um and well and Eeyore too because everyone goes to that place at times yeah everyone's got an Eeyore yeah that's what the movie the emotions Pixar movie was all about I know oh god <laughs> that that movie if it had existed when I was a child would have saved me a lot of money on therapy as an adult <laughs> <laughs> well li- listen listeners if you want to share something you learned this week or um, if you want to share your ratio of Winnie the Pooh characters that make up you um, email me at researchholepodcast at gmail.com I may read it in a future episode Where can people find you if they like want to look you up or read more about your work? Oh, well, um, they can visit my website, which is Blair, B-L-A-I-R, Thornburg, T as in Tom, H-O-R-N, B as in boy, U-R-G-H, dot com, um, which Mm -hmm. I learned from my mom spelling it over the phone. And um, (laughs) I am also on various social media uh, under, well, that name, if you search for it. Uh, I haven't been super active lately, but I'm trying to come back now that maybe things are less terrible. And all of my books are available for purchase on um, most major retailer websites and indie bookstores and libraries. So, uh, yeah, if you really like crumbling old things and random facts, uh, I think they're really good for that. (laughs) They are. They are. I think both of your heroines, at least in your YAs, have good strong opinions about random things oh i so much fun and thank you for creating this podcast as an excuse to do this with many more people and share it because it's delightful yeah and folks we're i'm gonna put some links in the show notes and i'll try to find some pictures if you have any pictures blair that you want to reference for some of the stuff we talked about um send them my way You just listened to Research Hole. I'm Val Howlett. Our music is by Joey Howlett. Our logo is by Leah Felicity Lucci. Goodbye.